Good morning. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 11. And if you have one of our Exodus journals, that's on page 50. Uh, we are gladly getting to continue our study in Exodus, and we are really reaching the climax of all that God had promised to do for his chosen people so far as we are nearing the actual Exodus itself. And this chapter that we're in this morning is a bit of a segue chapter. It's not very long. So if you were with us the last couple of Sundays and you heard us read these large swaths of narrative, that's not what's happening this morning. It's 11 verses. But I was telling uh, Pastor Dave before this, there's not a lot of content that either hasn't already been talked about or prophesied in the previous chapters or that we're not about to talk about in the next chapter. And there are things that God is repeating for the sake of emphasis that I will repeat for the sake of emphasis. We just want our preaching to follow the contours of Scripture. Amen? You guys... You shouldn't want anything else, and we're not going to give you anything else. We've got one diet to give us, and it's right here. And so we're going to follow the contours of chapter 11, but I'm going to focus on one particular point that is emphasized in this chapter. Um, so that's what we're doing. I'm, the first two places that we emphasize in this text this morning, I'm going to go through pretty speedily. Not because it's not important, we've just already beat this drum. And then we're going to camp out in kind of our third section. Um, and my, my aim today is to be very pastoral in helping us to understand truths and doctrines about God and His ways that we see all over Scripture but I think as Christians, we have a hard time navigating. How do I pray in light of this? How do I live in light of this? And so my heart and hope for us this morning is that today would be both enlightening for your understanding, but also helpful for how to actually not just receive these things from God, but delight in these truths as his people. So um, if you are physically able, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word this is Exodus chapter 11. We're going to read the whole thing. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague, one more, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog 
shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's pray. Father, we invite you now by your Spirit to come and speak to our hearts. Would you lay us open? in humility before your living word. I pray that we would receive and delight in all of it and that we would exult in your love and in your lavish grace on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Yeah, I titled this message, Delighting in God as Distinctive People. Delighting in God as Distinctive People. People, Paul writes in Romans 15 that whatever was written in former times, so Exodus included, whatever was written was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And you and I are in constant need of this endurance and, and the encouragement of the scriptures because we are so prone to losing hope and we are so prone to unbelief of so many different varieties and kinds. We, we get in the midst of the busyness of life or the trials of life, and we forget God. We forget truths about God. We forget um, His love. But I think we, we have this kind of unbelief that we live with. It's almost like a fever that won't go away. It's not that we totally disbelieve God and what He said, but we have a tendency to receive what he says without delighting in it. So I, I will agree that these things are true about, true about God, but I might apologize for God about some of these things. Or if he says things generally about his people, we have a hard time bringing them all the way home to our own hearts. So I know that Jesus came and he died because he loves all of his people. But I have a hard time taking that and making it true about me, right? Where I, where I have actually become his treasured possession that he delights in. And there are a lot of reasons for that unbelief. Um, but my heart this morning is for us to grow as people who, if this phrase makes sense, underline all of the scripture and not just the parts that, either we like or we can receive readily or that land home most immediately to us. So you might notice this. If you go, if you're a person who highlights in your Bible, I know some of you that's like sacrilege, but others of you, you might highlight the whole thing. If you go through and you look at what you have underlined or what you have highlighted, it's usually the things that are, you can most resonate with, right? So, you're, so I, I don't want to jump ahead, but that's where I want to go is I want to delight in all that God has said with you. And I want to believe all that God has said and to, to go a little bit deeper in what he said this morning so that 
we can rejoice in light of it and join him in, um, in these truths. So, we read this last week in our scripture reading in Psalm 135. I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. So here's an example of a truth that we can agree with, but you may not necessarily delight in this truth that our God is in the heaven and he does everything that he pleases which means in all of my life, in all the circumstances of my life, however sorrowful, I can delight in having a sovereign God who is working everything according to his good pleasure, and I can trust him, and I can not only begrudge this thing, I can delight in his goodness. I can lay a hand over my mouth and worship because the Lord is good, and he does all that he pleases. And so we continue to see him showcase his glory and do all that he pleases in this uh, showdown with Pharaoh. And the question for us is why? why? Why are things coming to a head now? Why after nine plagues is he just now? It seems like we just heard last week, Moses is like, you're never going to see my face again. Then we get a whole additional chapter of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, him leaving in hot anger, there being this same, like, I'm still not going to let you go, and it just feels like it's dragging on. And the question is, why? What, what does the Lord want to teach us? So again, we've got three sections where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to go through the first two pretty fast, and then we'll come to the third and camp out. So first, God is revealing his glory in the world. I told you, it's not new. But I think this is repeated for us in this text again and again. We can see God sovereignly working for his glory so that um, you hear it enough until you believe it and you delight in it, right? This is, it's not enough for us to just say this one message and another message like, yeah, 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 I know God does everything that he does for his glory. But for us to rejoice and believe it afresh, looking back over our our last week and saying, yes, he does all that he pleases. And I know that everything that he has done, he has been doing for his glory and I can trust him and delight in him for it. it it's like um, us teaching and telling our children the same things over and over again and you wonder how many times you have to repeat yourself till it gets in the system. And so this is God doing this again with us to see, all right, the highest and best aim of all of creation is to magnify God and to honor him as God. That is the highest and best aim of your life. The best thing for you is not God answering your prayers according to what you think would be good for your life. The best thing for your life is God acting for his glory in ways that he knows is best that will result in your life praising and honoring and magnifying him. And so we see him acting sovereignly for his glory again and again. We see it again in chapter 11 and verse 1. You can see God's sovereignty laden in verse 1. Now this, this language is the Lord had said to Moses. So this is a kind of a recap. The bookends of this chapter are kind of recap of past narrative. That's why it's going to sound familiar. So we're referring back to chapter 3 and 4 and 6 and 7. The Lord had said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. 
Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. This is not new material. This is chapter 4 on repeat. God had said this to him. And you can see all of this was happening just as God had promised. God has always been in control. He says, I know there's been nine plagues. It's going to take exactly one more. How does he know that? Because he has been the one who decides when his people come out, not Pharaoh. This has not been a battle of equals. He decided when they lived and died. Dave preached last week. God told Pharaoh, I could have killed you with the pestilence day one. This is not a, a battle of power. God has been doing all that he's done so that he might magnify his glory through his wonders and his judgments against Egypt. That is what we read in chapter 7 when God is telling Moses at that preamble or the prologue to the plagues when he's telling him, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And we see the reason why is so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And then at the end of this chapter, so we said kind of the bookends of chapter 11 are recaps of what we've already discussed, what we've already seen in the preceding narrative. Well, at the end of chapter 11, it says, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Why? Pay attention to these that's in the Bible. So that. Why will Pharaoh not listen to you? That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go out of his land. Why? By the decision and authority of God. He did not let them go so that God's wonders might be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So God does all that he does in the timing that he does, including all the details of your life, to reveal his glory in the world. And he wants us, as we grow in maturity in Christ, not to just receive that begrudgingly, but to delight in that as saving truth, that he does everything he does to magnify Jesus and to make us like him. And we can worship him in that. So that is number one, what he's doing in chapter 11 and in the world in all this time leading us to this place. He's revealing his glory in the world. Two, God is exercising his judgments against the world. We have seen this over and over and over again, so we are not camping out here the whole time. But you will not be surprised to know that God, again, in this chapter and in this next plague is going to be exercising his judgment against those who reject God and go after idols instead. And so we see God bringing his judgment against the gods of Egypt. See this with um, just in this next plague as God is prophesying about killing all the firstborn of the sons of Egypt. That is going to be judgment against the sun god, Ra, who's known to be the giver of life against Pharaoh himself, who thought himself to be a manifestation of this sun god and the giver of life, against Osiris, who was the god of the afterlife and the dead and resurrection. So they had gods that were anti-Christ at all these different places, and every single one of these plagues was designed and tailored by God to come directly against the false idols of Egypt. And we need to know that in the midst of living among idolatry in our world. God will bring judgment 
against the wickedness and the idolatry that is in our world, including the gods of money, the gods of sex, the gods of vain ambition and self-exaltation. He, he is going to lay them low, and he's giving us an example of that. They even had a goddess for cattle and viewed cows to be sacred. So that is why he's including, I'm going to strike the firstborn from Pharaoh to the handmaid all the way to the cattle. There's not one thing in Egypt that is going to escape the judgment of God and his judgment against their gods. And this judgment was coming against Pharaoh specifically. Now, in the design of God, you can look in the law of God, firstborns had a special place as the mark of a man's strength. And so God said, look, if you have a firstborn of an unloved wife and you have a first, uh, another son of a wife who came later that you loved, and it's kind of hearkening back to this, um, you know, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Esau kind of moments. And he's saying, look, the firstborn even if he's not your favorite, he should have the double portion, the double inheritance, that this was the mark of a man's strength. So you take that principle and you apply it here. God is targeting the strength and the pride of Pharaoh. He's coming right at the heart of this hardened-hearted tyrant and who had rejected God. And God had told him that this was going to happen if he refused him. So God's warnings go out into the world to tell them to repent, to get them to be warned and to turn to him. In Exodus chapter 4, the Lord had said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Okay, here's an example of Scripture that is not just to be merely received, but delighted in. We we trust God. This is God exercising vengeance and justice in a way that belongs to him alone and not to us. But he is saying, you have oppressed my firstborn son, and I will render to you according to your works as you deserve if you do not let them go. Pharaoh called his bluff, and now he is going to experience the due penalty of his rebellion and treason against Almighty God. And this judgment was not just coming on Pharaoh, and Egypt was sort of innocent bystanders. You can read this, and this is kind of the core part of this middle, chap- middle part of chapter 11. Look at verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Can you imagine that cry. You should actually put yourself in the narrative and hear this. And then hear, too, this is what all the world deserves for their sin against God. 
and more. This is actually, I want you to think about your own children or children that you love or brother and sister or your parents, right? These are the closest people to you, your most treasured possession, and they are ripped away from you in judgment. And it's not that it's unjust. You deserve this. And it says in chapter 12, he'll say, there is not a house in all of Egypt where there was not someone dead. The heaviness of the wages of sin covered Egypt like a, like a blanket they couldn't come out of. And this word that is used in verse 6 for this cry that has never been heard before, any like it in the land of Egypt, is the same that was used in chapter 3, verse 7, for the cry that had come for the people of Egypt to God in the midst of their oppression. So this is God's judgment on Egypt. If you remember in chapter 1, all of Egypt was instructed to take the male sons of the Israelites and to cast them into the Nile. And every indication is that they did, that all of Egypt went along, unlike the Hebrew midwives, they went along with Pharaoh's command. So these were pagan idol worshipers whom God had clearly revealed himself to in all that he's made, and they rejected the worship of the one true God in exchange for the worship of created things. They lived with wanton pleasure in pagan idolatry, and they murdered the people of God uh, without restraint. And so this is God exercising justice and vengeance on the whole land of Egypt. And if you're going to appreciate this third and last point where we are going to camp out, you need to know we deserve this. This is so hard for us to wrap our minds around because we so side with sinful man in our sinfulness that we cannot imagine God actually giving us what we deserve. We cannot imagine actually deserving what God says that we deserve for our sinfulness against God. So we can hear about the wrath of God being poured out on man or about hell, and it sounds a little ethereal and far off and out there. But then you hear about the judgment coming home and your children being killed and ripped away from you, and, and you deserved it. It starts to bring the wrath home. It starts to make sense of, wow, the wages of sin really is death. So the, the third and main thing I want to emphasize here that God is demonstrating is his lavishing his blessing on his people. Him lavishing his blessing on his people. In verse 7, God says, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast. Why? Pay attention to those that's. That you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So this truth is important enough that God works this miracle. I cannot walk outside in my own neighborhood with my neighbor dog without him barking at me, and I live there. Like, we should be friends by now. And I walk outside in my own house, my own neighborhood, and the neighbor dog will not start barking at me as one dog. So they're literally 
A whole nation of a million people are leaving at night. And God says, you're not going to hear one dog growl. You will not hear a bark among all the dogs of Egypt. And this is why I'm going to work this miracle that it will be eerily silent. You're not going to hear a grumble from all of these people who all have dead children in their house. And not one of them will curse you on the way out. Not them or their dogs. Why? That's a miracle. Because I want you to know that the Lord makes a distinction between his people and those who are not his people. Now, this is where I want to camp. I want to highlight for a moment this distinction for our understanding and our joy and our humility. Because I think this distinction is hard for Christians to navigate. You you will either feel bad about having received mercy from God in Christ and feel guilty for rejoicing in this distinction, or you will self-righteously assume that you deserve the distinction and highlight it as kind of a, a metric of your own merit, as if you somehow deserved to be made part of the people of God. So the question is, how do we pray and live and rejoice in his steadfast love and rejoice in his judgment against the wicked, all the while remembering that we ourselves deserve judgment and we are rejoicing in God's justice and his goodness as redeemed sinners? You see how I've been praying for wisdom, how to navigate this for you pastorally so that you can go to God's word and read all of it and say, yes. You are good. Not, I don't understand you in this, how you can still be good and say this. Not, well, God, it feels kind of bad to pray these things. So, and, it, and it's everywhere. So thankfully, I saw all these things three or four times just in our Bible reading from this week. So I'm saying, if you read your Bible this week, I'm hoping that right now will be helpful to you for actually understanding and rejoicing and delighting in God in all that he says and in all that he does while being so overwhelmed and humbled by grace. So we're talking about God's lavish blessing on his people. And I want to start by saying there could not be a more staggering difference between those who are outside of Christ and those who are inside of Christ. That is the hinge. When we talk about those who are his people and who are not his people, we're talking about those whom God has brought into his covenant by the blood of Jesus and those who have rejected Christ and rejected God and are going to. So if we're going to understand this text and delight in it, and I would add if you're going to read the Psalms and understand them and delight in them, or if you're going to read most of the scriptures and understand them and delight in them, then you need to keep the overarching story of scripture in mind so i'm not going to preach the all the overarching part of scripture right now i just i want you to keep these things in mind because you you have to if you're going to live in god's grace rejoicing in all that he does so the very first thing and i so appreciated your pastoral prayer bro starting with god you are holy 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 the whole earth is full of his glory This is the song in heaven, day and night. God is 
holy and the whole earth is full of his glory and his majesty. And he designed everything that he made to live in all of him and live in relationship with him and rejoice in him and not in themselves to come gladly under his authority and not rebel against him and go after our own authority. And so you have to know and remember that everything exists for this holy God and the whole earth is full of his glory and he made you for his glory. The whole earth was made for his glory and all have sinned and fell short of living for that glory. Every single person that he has made despised him and chose rebellion instead of the fountain of living waters. And the wages of that treason is condemnation under the just wrath of God. That is what all of us deserve. So you need to know in the midst of reading chapter 11 not to forget Israel deserved for their firstborn children to die. We deserve it. And you need to know that God chooses to have mercy on some. That he will work all things for their everlasting good in Christ and bring them into his family, the church, and that he chooses to have mercy. That from before the foundation of the world, he set his love on you and chose you to be part of his family and predestined you to adoption as sins. Why? Ephesians 1. Pay attention to the so that's. To the praise of his glorious grace. So that no one can boast before God. So that it wouldn't, salvation wouldn't rest on the wisdom of man or the will of man, but on the grace and kindness of God. There are others who he does not choose to have mercy on, but has formed them instead as vessels of wrath and both display his glory. One kind of people, his chosen people, display his glory in them being objects of his unmerited kindness and then putting his grace on display that God is rich with forgiveness and love on undeserving sinners. And he also puts his glory on display in his judgments against the wicked. That is glorious for God to be the just judge of all the earth and him not let one person get away with one act of treason or sin or oppression or murder. It, God is just and he is good in his judgments. He will not judge anyone more than they deserve. He will mete out his judgments with perfect equity and righteousness. And it is glorious for good to triumph over evil. And God will. So, when you read the Psalms, or you're learning how to pray them, or you're reading this chapter, and you're reading about a distinction between Israel and Egypt, and if, if you're earlier on in your understanding of God's word and you've not yet been sanctified to understand these things, then you can look at it and just say, well, this doesn't seem fair. Right? We're, we're looking more horizontally at other people and say, well, why does God make a distinction between Israel and Egypt? So that's what I want to clarify today. Right? This is, it matters to be part of the covenant people of God. When he saves us, he is really saving us. I was talking to Dave about 
this is the, the nature of covenant love, right? When I made a covenant with Kayla as my wife, I was saying no to every other woman so that I set my love on Kayla. Now, there are places where the marriage covenant breaks down as the example, right? Because I'm not a holy God and she's not, you know, this simple person that deserves my judgment, right? I'm not saying that. Hold your emails. Um, but that is the nature of covenant love. You set your love on the people and it matters, right? There is a reality of covenant love and enjoyment of friendship than a depth of relationship that Kayla and I have in our covenant that everyone else is a stranger to because it matters that we're in covenant. And so I want you to think about two different views, and then we're jumping back to this text, but I want you to think about two different views when you think about God's judgment of the wicked and the righteous. One is God's kind of director's cut, behind-the-scenes view where you understand from God's revelation in the Scriptures how God is writing the story and orchestrating His world. And then the other view is you are an actor in the scene, in the play. You have a part to play in the story, and you actually aren't privy to what roles people play as you're living in the story. So you know that some people are predestined in him from before the foundation of the world, and that there are others who are professing Christians in the story, but they actually are following Jesus because he gave them bread and not because they actually wanted to come to him for life. You also know that there are those in the story that are living just like the wicked, but they're going to come out and they're going to be redeemed by Jesus and they're ultimately going to end up as one of the redeemed and part of the family of God. And then there are others in the story who are the wicked and that is the term that the Bible uses for those who are strangers to the covenants and promises of God who have rejected Christ and will not repent and turn to him. And the, all these are cast in the story. And God knows who is who. And you, for the most part, do not. You know by your fellowship and accountability and love and interaction with the church, those who are his. But as you're interacting among the lost, you actually do not know which one of these is going to have the testimony, such were some of you. You were formerly hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were called out by Jesus and ransomed and redeemed. You don't know. And then there's others that they're just going to go on hating Jesus and hating, refusing to love the truth and repent and so be saved. And they're going to go on to an eternity apart from God. And the Bible calls them the wicked. And the wicked includes everyone from your garden variety neighbor who just seems like a sweet old lady, but she's pagan or Buddhist or whatever, and she hates Jesus and prizes herself and her own authority, right down to the guy on death row for being a serial murderer or pe pedophiles. And, and, and everybody in between, if they are far from God and have rejected his Christ and his anointed, then the scriptures call them 
the wicked. And the Lord knows those who are his. Now, Proverbs 16.4, and this is the last time I'm going to reference Dave in this sermon, but he just referenced this before this, and I want to give credit to where it's due. This is a helpful verse. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Romans 8.28, we know God has works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But that verse is not talking about God coming in after the fact and working all the details of your life for your good and your conformity to Christ because things got away from him and then he cleaned it up. He orchestrates all of it, including all the lives of all the wicked who will never repent and turn to him. They actually exist to glorify him in his judgments and to serve your good and glory in Christ. And we read this this week in Judges chapter 3, when it says that God left some of the wicked in the land so that he might test his people to see whether or not they would truly obey him and so that they would learn warfare. So in that passage, you have that God actually used the wicked to test and to teach his people. This is why they were there. So, we ought to be the most tear-filled, humble recipients of grace. Because we know the only reason why we treasure Christ, why we're part of the distinctive people, is because we were dead in our sins, And in our trespasses, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And he did it so that in the coming ages he could show you the surpassing grace, riches of his grace and kindness, and he might lavish you with it for all of eternity. And there is, there could not be a bigger difference between the the distinction that God makes for his people whom he has called and set apart to be ransomed and redeemed and treasured and those that he has reserved for the day of trouble, the wicked who refuse to come to him for life. And so, remember I said, I I want this message to be helpful. I want you to think about it in life. I want you to think about those two different levels. I want you to think about the director's cut and I want you to think about living in the scene. So in the, when you're praying in the director's cut, in your prayer closet, you're able to go to the Psalms and actually pray the way that David prays generally to where you, you come to Psalms like Psalm 92. And David is singing this. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Now, in your devotional time, when you are reading that, there are, there are quite a few ways to read that. You can read it like, yes, Lord, and I pray that for so-and-so. Would you do it? And you're actually thinking about a specific individual, and you're asking for God to do it for them. And I was recalling to mind this week, think about Ananias in Acts chapter 9 when God tells him to go speak to Saul. 
And Ananias says, Lord, I've heard about that guy. He's killing your people. And God says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. And he's going to proclaim my name among the Gentiles. I have a purpose for him. And that, that is like a behind-the-scenes cut to say, whoa, look, look at how we're prone to act. Look at how we're prone to think that we know when we're in the scene. And God comes over the top and he says, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to pray for those who persecute you. I want you to show kindness to everyone because vengeance belongs to the Lord and he will repay. So in the scene, you are with gentleness correcting those in opposition. If by some chance God might show them mercy and lead them to a knowledge of the truth. It's when, when praying specifically, our prayers are, God, redeem them or ruin them. I don't know which is which. God, would you please rescue them or, or take them out? One of the two, because they are active, acting treasonously against your people. They're acting wickedly, put an end to the wickedness, either by redeeming them or killing them. But behind the scenes, generally, as you're in your prayer closet and you're praying, you can say, God, wipe out the wicked. Bring about your judgments. Let them fall into the nets that they have set for your people. And you can pray it with humility, knowing you deserve the same, but delighting in God's justice and his goodness. In him enacting the judgments written. So I've got to hustle. He needs to be our North Star and our reference point. If man is your reference point, you'll be confused and question God's justice. But if God is your starting point, then you will see all of his judgments are just and you will delight in his commandments and what is good and righteous. And so you can see in this text God's clear distinction between his people and the wicked, those who are in covenant with God and those who are not. So in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 11, He's, he gives them that mandate he had already given to them in chapter 3. You can go back and read it. When everybody asked their neighbor, it was almost like it was a secret plot plan. So they spoke it in the ears of each other. All right, when God takes the lives of all these firstborn, everybody is going to go and ask their neighbor for their stuff. And they're all going to give it to you. God says, I am going to plunder Egypt. You're going to have so much wealth to take out from the wicked that you're going to have to put it on your toddlers just to carry it out. There's a distinction between the wicked and his people. I want you to consider this, that for over 400 years before this moment, God had told Abraham that this was going to happen. In Genesis 15, you can go back and read it. No, for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So he told them this was going to happen 400 years. So that means that all the wealth that Egypt accumulated between that point and the point where the Israel's actually walking out with all of their stuff, it was just a savings account for the people of Israel. All the wealth that they accumulated in their pride, all the wealth that Joseph accumulated in his wisdom, as the famine struck and people were bringing their wealth into Egypt, it was all for the people of God. All of God's blessing. It looked like, God, how long will the wicked prosper? God, how long will it look like you're blessing them and prospering them? But in the end, it all flows to the people of God. And it's the same now. It may look like the wicked are prospering. It may look like those who are far from Christ are the ones who are flourishing. But in the end, it all flows to the people of God. 
it will all go to Christ and we are in him. And so I'm going to give you super fast. I've got five minutes and real quick applications for today. And I mean it when I say they're fast. If you have yet to believe on Christ, this is the biggest, this is your only takeaway. Flee to him. The day is coming when God's judgment will come on the whole earth without distinction. From the highest throne to the handmaid and everyone in between. And there will be no escape from the judgment of Christ outside of him. And so the question is, will you be hidden with Christ? Will you receive his pardon as he calls to you and says, seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts and let them return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. This is a glorious good news that he has commissioned us with as we go out into the world, as we go out and live in the screenplay. God, we just prayed for you to bring judgment on the wicked and to rescue the lost into your family. And I don't know who's who, but I'm going out and I'm, pray- I'm preaching Christ. I'm scattering the seed of the gospel and I'm bidding people come into the ark of Christ. For believers, one, believe his heart toward you in Christ and trust him. If I had one takeaway for you today, this would be it. And in honor of Tim Keller, who just went to be with the Lord on Friday, I'm going to give you a quote from him. He said, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And you need to believe both of those things. You actually don't know the half of how sinful you are and how much you deserve the wrath of God. And you don't know the beginnings of how blessed and how rich his grace towards you in Jesus is. But I told this to Kayla this week. Oh, we relate to everything now through Jesus Christ, including the Father. And so when I come to the Father, he sees me in the Son. He loves me and delights in me and calls me his own and takes pleasure in you because you're in the Son. And you need to believe it. This is what he's getting at when he says, I've made a distinction between you and the world. It's not just so that you can feel good about there being a distinction. In Isaiah 43, this is what he says. Thus now says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes. Listen, church, you're precious to him. And because of that, he honors you and he loves you. He gives men in return for you, other people in exchange for your life. He has set a distinction between the world and you because you are precious to him and he loves you. He has called you to himself in Christ because you are precious to him and you need to believe it and trust him to delight in God in all that he does. I want to keep saying this again and again, in his mercy and in his judgments, for you to go learn to read and highlight all of it. 
for you to read something like Psalm 147. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving and make melody to our God on the lyre. You know what we do? Sing to the Lord and make melody. Oh, he, the Lord lifts up the humble. I feel bad about highlighting that he casts the wicked to the ground. But he's singing that because our God is good and just and he will not allow the wicked to go unpunished or to not receive what he is due. So it is the honor for God's godly ones to execute his judgments on the nations in prayer. Psalm 149, go read it, learn it, highlight it. Delight in all that God does. As you rest in God, leave vengeance to him. That's number three. Leave vengeance to him. Go read Romans 12, 14, 17 through 21. Vengeance is right and good, but it belongs to God. It is not yours. So your vengeance is fleshly, unholy, unhealthy, and wrong. God's vengeance is right and true. Leave it to him. Number four, walk in the way of faith and blessing. I, I, <laughs> I was going to build out that point about Egypt accumulating wealth for the people of God more, but just hear this. Walk in the way of faith and blessing. I, I see this as making a beeline to the lowest point. You humble yourself before God and you go to the place where it's all rolling to anyways. You don't go out and try to provide for yourself or try to scheme in your own wisdom or try to live apart from God because all of those people are just accumulating stuff that is going to go to the people who are hidden in Christ with God, who have humbled themselves. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time, but he is opposed to the proud and those who seek to go make it happen on your own. And so just go ahead and go straight to the lowest place and live in the place of faith and blessing. And then last, live distinctively. If God has made you a distinctive people, if he has set his love on you in a distinctive way, then you ought to be distinctively holy. You ought to be, live like you're actually his. Um, and so this is where I want to leave you. I want to read you this um, brief text from First Peter 1 and then hand it over to Pastor Dave for communion. I think this sets us up though. First Peter chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance when you too were living among the wicked. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's saying that to his people that he has made a distinction among. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so the, this is the call to us as the people of God in the midst of God's judgments, right? We're right in between him working his judgments to deliver his people and the ultimate one that's going to foreshadow Jesus as the Passover lamb, who's the only, our only hope in life and death, our only rescue from the wrath of God is the blood of the lamb. 
But if he has brought us out and he has set his love on us so that we are precious to him, then we ought to live as a distinctive people, reveling in the lavish grace of God with overwhelmed humility, with no ounce of self-righteous pride. And then we ought to go into the world calling people to come into the ark of Christ and delighting in all of God's word, praying it, delighting it, singing it, knowing all these truths that are true at a general level, even if we don't know how all, how he's going to judge the wicked in your day-to-day life. So let's go love our enemies and exalt Christ and then pray for God to work his judgments in the world according to his righteousness and sing while we pray it. Let's pray. Lord, I know we are in deep water today and it is so hard for us as sinners to navigate anything humbly or to rejoice in what is truly good uh, when we have so much more affinity and fraternity with what is evil as we're coming out of it. And so I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to delight in what is truly good, that you would help us to develop taste buds for your glory and for your goodness and for your judgments, and that we would live as a humbled people who are overwhelmed by your mercy and your grace that you've lavished on us in Christ. Lord, please, may we praise you for your glorious grace and teach us how to read and how to pray, how to sing according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.